Well, good morning. I'm Julie Coleman. I'm part of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. And today we're going to be continuing in our series in the Gospel of Mark, which we have called The Big Reveal. You know, we did some singing today about leaning on the strength and the power of Jesus Christ. And if you've been a believer for a long time, or maybe more recently have begun a relationship with God, something that we all have in common at one time or another is the problem of doubt. Ugly word, but there it is. <laughs> Your doubts might look something like, why is God allowing this to happen? Is he truly always good? Doesn't seem like it. Does he care I'm going through this? Am I somehow not important enough to him to warrant his attention and action on my behalf? Or maybe you've wondered if he's mad at you or punishing you, which causes you to doubt the sufficiency of the cross. Maybe you're really not forgiven for all your sins. And sometimes we even get to the point of wondering, and I have, does God really exist? Well, today we're going to be looking at another group of people who were teetering on the edge of doubt. And we're going to see how Jesus dealt with them to get a glimpse of how God deals with us. So let's take a look at Mark chapter 8. In those days, when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will anybody be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them, and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them, and they served the people. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 people were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. Let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, we love you. <laughs> Thank you that you are our strength and our shield. Sometimes we doubt you, God. We doubt your strength. We doubt your care. We sometimes even may doubt your existence. Please help us, God, to take from this passage today the truth that you have for us. With your Holy Spirit, transform our lives with this truth. And just we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some scholars have theorized that this miracle that we just read um, was actually a second rendering of, the same, uh, the, of a miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 that we just talked about a few weeks ago. And there are a lot of elements that they share. Um, Jesus feeds a large number with a small amount of bread and fish. Out of the wilderness, out in the wilderness, away from civilization, is where both of them took place, the disciples were involved. They uh, distributed the food, and then Jesus commanded the crowds to recline. It says sit down, but the actual word is recline. In both cases, what, what is what you would do at a first century banquet. Jesus giving thanks for the food, and everyone eats and are satisfied. 
So all those things are in common with those two, and you probably recognize that as we went through it. But they also differ. And so I made a little chart to to differentiate between the feeding of the 5,000, which is what we did a few weeks ago, to the feeding of the 4,000, which is what we're covering today. Jesus had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So the compassion was there also in the feeding of the 4,000, but a different reason, because they were three days without food. Jesus teaches them in the feeding of the 5,000, but there's no teaching even mentioned in the feeding of the 4,000. The disciples actually initiate addressing the food issue in the 5,000, but Jesus initiates addressing the need for food in this one. There's five loaves, two fish, and 5,000 men plus women and children in the first miracle, seven loaves, some fish, and 4,000 people in the second. Left over, 12 baskets in the first. The second one, seven baskets. And then finally, and this is a big one, the first one was a completely Jewish audience in Israel. The second one was a Gentile majority audience in Gentile territory. But the strongest evidence for me out of all these things, and is it one more, is that Jesus, in our, the next part of the passage, which we will cover eventually, Jesus refers to them as two separate events in a question to his disciples. So to me, that clinches it right there. So when I jumped into this passage to study it, I found that I found, had more questions than answers. This is not an easy passage. This part was easier than the other part. But the, so I had some questions. The first was, who were the crowd that Jesus had fed? Well, this is the last of three miracles in a row, all of them in Gentile territory. And if you remember, him leaving Israel was a result of a conversation that he had with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were claiming that something from the outside could contaminate you, could make you unclean. And Jesus told them, no, what makes us unclean, what makes us unholy is what's in here. And yet you, nobody can contaminate you on that. You're doing that all on your own. And then he takes his disciples and he goes to the unclean, the most unclean of all territories, the time of the Gentiles, the place of the Gentiles. And if you take a look at this map, it's uh, the, the areas the, of the, um, Israel at the time of Christ. And you can see the Dead Sea and Judea where uh, Jerusalem, Jericho is, and then Samaria and Galilee. And then you'll see north, There's an area called Phoenicia, and that's where he went first. He went to the city of Tyre, and he met the woman that we call the Syrophoenician woman, and she was pleading for him. That was the story where, you know, she said the crumbs from the children are good enough for the dogs, Um, that interesting story. And then after he healed her daughter of demon possession, he went north to Sidon. You can see it way at the top of the map, um, which is an interesting thing because then he went through the desert on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and finally got to Decapolis. It was a long trip, but he was in there, and he was talking to Gentiles the whole time. Well, so now the second, the second and the last miracle for Gentiles happened in Decapolis, and that's what, we're gonna, that's what we'll be talking about today. Um, and the healing of the deaf man, which we covered last week, and today's story take place there. And Mark also identifies the crowd in the Greek as from afar, which is an expression commonly referring to Gentile or Gentile lands in the Old Testament. So while there might have been some Jews there, it's very likely that the majority of the audience this time 
uh, present for this miracle were Gentile. So another question then, why seven baskets left over? Why seven? That was a question that bugged me a little bit. Is there some kind of special significance to seven? We all know it's one of God's favorite numbers, right? So the earlier banquet actually had 12 baskets that were left over for each disciple, which was a picture of the nation of Israel, 12 tribes. This one had seven. Well, why? Well, it depends on who you read. (laughs) I have a lot of commentaries, and I read a lot of them this week, and there are a lot of theories on why God used the number seven. Some of them are pretty extremely far-fetched. Uh, Mark never explained, so we're kind of on our own about this to come up with a reason. Well, I have a three-pronged reason is my theory. I couldn't pick just one. <laughs> the first one is the miracle had to be different enough to assure Mark's readers that it was a separate event because one was for Jews, one was for Gentiles, and it was important to differentiate. And in the Bible, the number seven stands for completion, perfection. I think that just as God used 12 baskets of leftover to picture the tribes of Israel and the nation, the Jews, now having seven baskets left over would show how completely God would provide that bread of life for the Gentiles as well. I love that there were seven baskets left over because it was the same number of the loaves of bread that Jesus started with. There was, that would tell us that feeding the Gentiles was not going to exhaust God's resources and his provision for salvation for the Jews. There would be plenty enough for everyone. That was exactly what the Syrophoenician woman said to Jesus. Even the dogs under the table can feed on the children's crumbs. Which brings me to one other interesting fact. The word Mark used for all um, how well-fed the crowds used, translated here as satisfied, was used only three times in the book of Mark. The first time's here in the story. And also, that word was used to describe the crowd after Jesus fed the 5,000. The only other time that Mark uses this word was in the story of the Syrophoenician woman who claimed some of the abundance of God's mercy to her people. I don't think that's a coincidence. And for me, that word definitely connects these three stories. Now let's read the rest of the passage as we go back, uh, as we, uh, Jesus travels back to Galilee. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, to say, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. 
And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Well, this part of the passage, really, I really had to study this one because it was, I didn't understand. What was this leaven of the Pharisees and Herod? Jesus warned them about. It stumped me all week. Now, I knew that leaven is, uh, was fermented dough, and they would take that fermented dough out of a batch, save it for a week, and when they made the bread for the next week, they would mix that in there so it would ferment the whole new batch of dough. Um, so once in the New Testament, it does carry a positive sense, but every other time the word leaven is mentioned in the New Testament, it's used to con- con- connote excuse me, corruption, unholiness, or danger. So what particular corruption did Jesus mean? What did Herod and the Pharisees have in common? Well, it was hard to find in the book of Mark how many times that the Herod is being has, is shown in the book of Mark. I did a word search for his name. Couldn't find it there. But I did find one thing that was in common between Herod and the Pharisees, that in spite of all the miracles Jesus had done, Instead, they were both working to put an end to him. And this is what I found in verse 3-6. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. And there's another one in Luke, which I don't usually throw in a different book, but I thought this was a key verse. Just at that time, Pharisees approached him saying, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. So it's a fact that that was what was going on. They saw, but they did not see. They heard, but they did not hear. Another clue as to what that meant is that deep sigh that Jesus gave while he was speaking to the Pharisee. The the Greek word is used to describe persons who find themselves in situations when they're pushed to the limit of their faithfulness. It's kind of like the word exasperation and a combination of indignity and grief. Their unbelief, their unwillingness to accept him as from God got that kind of strong emotional response from Jesus. And their refusal to believe in spite of what was right in front of them was exactly what Ezekiel prophesied hundreds of years earlier about the Messiah. He wrote, Son of man, you live in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see, but do not see, ears to hear, but do not hear. So I strongly believe then that the leaven was their refusal, both Pharisees and Herod, to believe even after all they had seen and heard. Even after he raised from the dead later on, after he, uh, excuse me, raised the dead, healed the blind and the lame, made a paralyzed man walk again, and more, they still did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah sent from God. Their hearts were hardened, determined to work against God himself rather than believe what they had seen. So here we come to the so what. How can all this in this story help us in our relationship with God? Well, here's the thing. We can get so stuck in our own world that we can be blind and deaf to his work in us. Look at the disciples. When Jesus warned them about leaven, instead of thinking about the miracle they had just seen, 4,000 people fed with bread, all they could think about was literal bread, which they realized they had forgotten to bring. 
which actually was kind of ridiculous if you think about it. Do you think Jesus would be angry at not having enough bread after he was able to feed 4,000 people? I don't think it was going to be a problem. With that kind of power, why would they think he was worried about bread? And then Jesus questions them. He says, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? He reminds them, how many loaves of bread were, or loaves or uh, baskets were left over after feeding 5,000? The answer, 12. And how many today? Uh, seven. So they remembered the miracles. They remembered what they had seen. They'd seen them firsthand. Yet, rather than add to their current understanding of who Jesus was, they kept their feet firmly planted in their previous understanding of him, even in light what they had just come away with. Then he warned them with another question. Do you have a hardened heart? Now that reckons back to another earlier time in the boat when Jesus had just walked on water. Mark added this at the end of the story. They were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Now, how does a heart get hardened? Well, there are a couple of examples in the Old Testament of hardening hearts. Uh, the first is the, of Pharaoh in Egypt. Uh, the, he had the Israelites as slaves, and, they were, and God was going to move them out. And so uh, he sent plagues to convince Pharaoh and to show all of Egypt, plus the Israelites, how great and mighty he was. So Pharaoh had seen two proofs of God's existence and power. First was the first plague, water turning into blood. Every drop of water in Egypt turned into blood. And the second was frogs who swarmed up out of the Nile into every home, in their ovens, in their beds. Huge. And after Pharaoh saw those things, he hardened his heart. Then God sent swarms of flies, making man and beast miserable. Gnats is the translation of those. And we read again, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. Now, another instance I found of hardening hearts was in the desert at a place called Meribah. The Israelites had been rescued out of Egypt. God had parted, after seeing those 10 plagues, he parted the Red Sea for their escape, uh, killed the army of Egypt that were going after them. Uh, big stuff. Then they were in the desert for months, and God supplied them with water and manna, sustained their lives in the wilderness. They had witnessed the great power of God in the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, and had been led by a pillar of fire in the night and a pillar of cloud in the day and more. But they did not allow that very, very obvious information they had experienced to enlighten their hearts. So they failed to enter the promised land. With a lack of faith, they went back in the desert. And now at Meribah, we find them wailing and complaining again, refusing to trust in what they had already seen God reveal himself to be, things they had personally experienced. And much later, a psalmist wrote these words, So do not harden your hearts as in Meribah. So I hope you're starting to see a thread here of what's going on. Hard hearts do not come from ignorance. Hard hearts 
come when we're given truth and then fail to understand and take in what we have been shown. Failure to understand, to take information in and let us transform you leads to a hardness of heart. And I want to note here that Jesus did not chastise them for a lack of faith. He chastised them for not seeing and understanding because the disciples were in danger zone. What was in their brains? They were teetering on this edge of a cliff, the same cliff that both Herod and the Pharisees were headed. If they continued to see and not take that information into their hearts, they were in danger of falling. Why? Well, Paul wrote that faith comes through hearing. We have to really hear to take it to heart, to grow in our faith. Hebrews teaches that without faith, it's impossible to please God, and faith grows when we really hear and really see what he has revealed. Faith comes through understanding. Now, our relationship with God is through faith, but we want our faith to grow. But Jesus said, faith as small as a mustard seed is enough. Why? Because when we believe in Jesus, it opens this conduit for God to reveal himself in ever-increasing levels to us. And as we understand him in a greater sense than we did before, our faith increases. Seeing, hearing, and understanding is the key to growing our faith. It's not about believing harder. Rather, it needs to be striving to understand him more. Now, Job went through a very terrible time. He lost family, possessions, and is is mourning and crying out to God. And after 37 years of uh, total silence, now God finally answers Job. He reveals a little bit about himself to, to answer him. How involved he is in creation from the least insignificant, like counting birth pains of a deer in labor, to the big things, like keeping the ocean within its boundaries. And after receiving those new insights... Job takes it right in, and this is what he says. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have declared that which I did not formerly understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Therefore, I repent in dust and ashes. So God's revealing himself all the time. His chief revelation, of course, is the word of God. We really can't have a true understanding of him without knowing what he reveals himself to be in it. And a study of the word will keep us going ever deeper in our relationship with him as he reveals himself in new ways through his word. He also uses things like our circumstances, input of other people, and sometimes our pain to give us, to draw us into a greater understanding of him. But in order to see, you have to look. In order to hear, you have to listen. I want you to think, how is God revealing himself to you right now? Maybe it's through a Bible study or a Sunday school class. Maybe it's in an article that you read online or through a book that you're reading or through a member here in our church community or the the whole community of Christ. We can give each other new insight through teaching or sharing what we've learned ourselves. Or maybe he's impressing things on you through his Holy Spirit, giving direction, one of those eureka moments, new thoughts, because he's at work. He's helping shape, he's shaping us into the image of Christ. He's showing himself for who he is, 
And as thoughts from him get taken into our hearts, our ability to trust him grows. We need to open our eyes. We need to see what he's doing, how he's revealing himself, because he's doing it all the time. Through the kindness of people, through provision for our needs, through his fabulous creation, through seeing the mind of Christ in others, we need to open our ears and listen for what he's impressing on us as well. His voice can be very soft. And if we're filling our minds all the time with whatever clutter, he can easily be drowned out. Quiet can be very necessary. My best ideas from God come from when I'm in the shower walking the dog or when I turn off the car radio and I start to pray instead of drowning the noise and talk with him. Maybe our busyness is our clutter, running from one thing to another, not even having time to think. So the point is to stop the noise and start listening. Wonderful times of communion with him are just a few quiet moments away. So do you want to grow your faith? Be rid of those doubts that sometimes plague you. Start seeking understanding. Like Proverbs advises, make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasure, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. And that is how we grow our faith. Don't miss what God is teaching you. Let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, we thank you that you never stop giving us new information because understanding you, really, understanding you will really take an eternity. Please help us to really see and to really hear you through your word, through others, and through your spirit who gives us understanding. And I'm asking, Lord, for all of us, Enable us to absorb that information into our hearts. We never want to become hardened to you because we love you and we want to love and trust you more and more as our lives go on. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.